Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio John chapter 7, verses 30 through 52, and I'll call it Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, Part B. I covered Part A when Jesus shows up at the Feast of Tabernacles halfway through the feast after having been suggested or advised by his brothers to show himself publicly. Instead, he goes down secretly, shows up halfway through. And in our last audio, which covered verses 11 through 29, we see that the crowd was very confused by Jesus' claims to be one with the Father, the Messiah. They Some said, yes, he is. Some said, no, he's not. Jesus taught about taught the crowd that he was from the Father and that Jesus sought the Father's glory and not his own. He didn't, Jesus then attacked the Pharisees for their legalism, especially concerning the Sabbath, and then he claims that the Father sent him, and that sets us up for right here. We'll start with John chapter 7, verse 30, because the first part of that verse says, Then they tried to seize him. Why? Because he was making himself one with the Father again. Now, there are no parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so we will only consider verses 30 through 30 through 52 in this audio. So we'll start with verse 30. Then they tried to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Here's some options as why they failed to seize him. John Gill says it's just because of the secret providence of God, no way ex- explicable to us from a human on a human level, but just God kept it from happening. Or it could be that the people were awed by the majesty of Christ or the... the uh, people being sent out. We'll see later the temple police were kind of awed by him and they didn't arrest him, so that could have been it. Could have been that they were afraid of the people and so whenever they tried to catch him in a secret place where the people weren't watching, they couldn't swing, couldn't pull that off. They were scared that the people would rise in the favor of Jesus and start a messianic movement and get the Jews in trouble with the Romans. Jesus said, my hour has not come. He liked that phrase he told the Samaritan woman earlier in John chapter 4, my hour has not yet come. Jesus was well aware that in the predetermined counsel of God, there was a time when he was going to get crucified. He knew what he was doing. We go to John 7 verse 31. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? Now, the, this crowd is probably the pilgrim crowd that came from outside of Jerusalem. It seems that most of the disbelief in Jesus happened because of the inhabitants of Jerusalem who were, most, who were more affected by the slanders of the Jewish leaders. But the people who had been up in Capernaum, up in Galilee, and seen all of his miracles, they believed in him. They saw all the signs. John Gill says, True faith spreads most among the meaner sort of people. You can That really is true. You look in China, all that incredible church growth that's happened in China, most of it's in the countryside with the simple people. The sophisticates in Beijing and Shanghai, well, not so much. Although they're there, but not as much as in the countryside. Now, the Messiah did signs to make people believe. This is, of course, fulfill, a fulfillment of Scripture, Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That's a well-known messianic scripture about Jesus' miracles. John Gill and Adam Clark point out that the people had a basic belief that the Messiah would do miracles. You have to do miracles if you're going to be a Messiah, and Jesus did that in spades. One time when John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus and said, Are you the Messiah, or do we look for another? Jesus replied to them, Matthew 11:4. Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Of course, the seeing part referred to the miracles that he did, and the hearing part referred to reports of the miracles that he did. John 7, verses 32 through 34. 
The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. What things? Oh, he's the Messiah. Look at all the signs. Pharisees heard that, so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple police to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I am only with you for a short time, then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. All right, so the temple police go to arrest him, sent by the chief priest. There's, there's only one chief priest at a time, but the Romans were in the habit of deposing chief priests, and then they would get another chief priest, and then the old chief priest kept the title as an honor, just like we call President Carter, President Clinton, even though they're not in office right now, they still have that title, President. So there was some honorary chief priests as well as the current chief priest and the Pharisees, who were, of course, the religious authorities and the law, the traditions of Moses and the traditions of the elders. They sent temple police to arrest him. The temple police were Levites who worked in the temple as policemen to arrest him. Now, I suppose that the fear of a riot was now overmatched by a fear that the people would believe in Jesus. I just finished saying they didn't get him at first because they were scared of a riot, most probably. But they were also scared of him pronouncing himself that he was a Messiah. They were scared of that, too. So they had conflicting fears here. And probably now the fear that Jesus was actually going to proclaim himself as a Messiah and get the people to believe him overmatched the fear of a riot lest they arrest Jesus. So they went out to arrest him. Now, when Jesus was confronted by the temple police, he says something a little bit enigmatic. He says, I'm only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me, to God the Father who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Well, what he meant, we'll talk about what he meant first before we look at what the people thought he meant. What he meant was, I'm going to heaven, and you guys are going to be in hell, or either here on earth, and you ain't going to find me in heaven. You're not going to be there. So what Jesus is saying, you want to arrest me? Uh-uh. You're wasting your time, guys. I'm going to be in heaven, and there's not a thing you can do to stop that. I'm only going to be here for a little while. He's getting ready to be crucified shortly. Within the next half year, I don't know the time sequence exactly. I don't know if anybody does, but it was, and I know it's, he's in his, the Judean ministry at the end, so it's not going to be long. So you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. In other words, I'm going to be in heaven. You cannot come there. You're not going to find me. Unholy people can't come into heaven, as Adam Clark said. Jesus, I think, is mocking the Jewish leaders. You think you're going to get me? You aren't going to get me. You're not even going to be able to find me. Now, next question. Why would the Jewish leaders try to find Jesus? I think he might have just been talking hypothetically. You're looking for me now, and you find me now, but later you're not going to find me should you look for me. But some people have asked the question is, why would the Jewish leaders actually be looking? In other words, it's an actual thing rather than a potential thing that they would be looking for Jesus. Here's some options. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said they might be looking for him, helping for help in desperation when judgment fell on Jerusalem in AD 70. Well, actually, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown just said looking for help in desperation. He didn't say referring to the coming Jerusalem, judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. That's what I'm saying. That's, that would fit Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's idea that they're going to cry to him and help. Another option is they're going to look to Jesus to repent for their sins. I don't believe that. Jameson Foster Brown denies it too. It can't be that because Jesus says, you cannot come there to find me to repent for your sins. You will look for me to repent and I'm not going to give you repentance? I don't think so. If they were looking for Jesus to find repentance, he would have given it to them. So I don't think that's going to work. I've got a sort of an off-the-wall idea. Maybe they were looking for Jesus' body to disprove the resurrection. We know that they spent a lot of time trying to figure out where that body was. So you're going to look for me, but you're not going to find me. Because my body's going to be resurrected. You're going to be looking in the tombs. The paupers 
uh, tombs around uh, Jerusalem, and I'm going to be in heaven, and you can't find me up there. You can't come. I don't know, whatever it was, but he. I think the thing to take away from this is Jesus really is not worried about getting arrested at this point. He, he's just throwing it back at the temple police. You're not going to get me. Later on, the temple police are going to go, are go, are going to go back and report to the Pharisees, never has a man talked like this. <laughs> they were pretty impressed with the people who had been sent out to arrest. John 7, verse 35 through 36. Then the Jews said to one another, where does he intend to go so we won't find him? Now, here we go. They're taking him literally again. He says, where you go, you won't find me. Jesus is talking about heaven. The Pharisees think he's talking about the dispersion. Where does he intend to go so we won't find him, the Jews, Jewish leaders say to one another. He doesn't intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Well, the dispersion, of course, is places in the world where Jews lived that wasn't their homeland of Israel. Among the Greeks or the Gentiles, it says the Greeks here. And the dispersion dispersed Jews could be found in all of Asia Minor. There were all over the cities in the Roman Empire. I remember it was the church historian Trulch. I don't know how to pronounce that guy's name. Trulch. Who I was reading in a different context about all the Jews in the Roman Empire. And every city had 10%, he said, of the city were Jews. So they were, or, or I might be quoting the figure wrong. It was a high percentage of Jews. And all over the Roman Empire, there were Jews. And there were also a lot of Jews in Egypt, for example, in Alexandria. Gill and Clark say the dispersion started in times of Alexander the Great. Most people say it started earlier in the times of the exile of, the, of Judea in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians took them all outside of Palestine and scattered them all over the ancient Near East. And I suppose that could be said all true of uh, AD 7, uh, B.C. 722 when Shalmaneser V conquered northern Israel and Sargon, his successor, scattered the Jews all over the ancient Near East earlier. So the Jews were everywhere. And so anyway, that's a rabbit trail a little bit. The Jews are saying, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are saying, what, now is he going to try to spread his poison all over the, all over the, to the Jews that are all over, scattered all over the world? The Jews of the dispersion, is he going to do that? John 7, verse 37 through 38. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, cried out with a loud voice now, and stood up, most teachers sat back then, but he stood up so everybody could see him where everybody could see him right there in front of the temple. If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within. Now, this is a very famous passage. It happened at the, on the Feast of Tabernacle on the last day, the most important day of the feast festival. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles lasted seven days, but there was a, a closing assembly on the eighth day, as the NIV Study Bible says, and I'm going to take it that that's probably what it means. The last day is the eighth day, the closing day, not the last day of the seven-day festival proper. Let's see the seven-day Feast of Tabernacles established in the law, Leviticus 23:34. Tell the Israelites the festival of booze. Booze is another translation for tabernacles. The festival of booze to the Lord begins on the 15th day of the seventh month and continues for seven days. What is that? Tishri, I think, is the seventh month. And that's in our present day, September or so, September, October. Deuteronomy 16:13. You are to celebrate the festival of booze for seven days. When you have gathered in everything from your threshing floor and the wine press, it was a harvest festival. Deuteronomy 16:15. Two verses later, you are to hold a seven-day festival for the Lord your God in the place He chooses. That's Jerusalem. 
and so forth. All right, and then the closing assembly is taught, is mentioned in Leviticus 23, verse 36. You are to present a fire offering to the Lord for seven days. On the eighth day, you are to hold a sacred assembly and present a fire offering to the Lord. It is a solemn gathering. You're not to do any daily work. So this is a kind of a festival Sabbath on the eighth day. This is probably when Jesus stood up and drew everyone's attention to him in a dramatic fashion. Now, this was the famous Jewish ceremony of the pouring of water at the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a ton of stuff on the internet talking about the ritual. I've got some quotes from John Gill and Adam Clark about exactly what was happening there, or Jameson Fawcett Brown, actually. But I'm not going to read those. Again, I, found, I found one that quotes that are a little bit fuller. I think uh, Alfred Edersheim somewhere has got a lot of stuff on this, but I couldn't find that quickly. So I'm going to just read you uh, from the internet the ritual that's involved to show how impressive it was, how dramatic I mean, the Jews are like the English. They really know how to do pageantry right. So let me read that to you. This is from Sapphire Throne Ministries. I know nothing about it. It is a Christian website, and I don't know where their authority is for this. But it, this is standard stuff. It's all over the Internet. It's all in the Jewish rabbis. It was a big festival. Most of the stuff I found on the Internet was actually Jewish in origin, Jewish people writing about their their ceremony here. So let me read this to you. It's a little bit long. I'm not going to stop as I go through, but just get a feel of the pageantry that's involved. The, all right, starting right now with a quote. The Hebrews have been told, he who has not seen the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing has never seen rejoicing in his life. Now this, that phrase right there is quoted all the time when you're talking about the water festival. If you haven't seen joy until you've seen the water pouring out of the water festival. So this is a joyous time. Continuing with my quotation here, did you know that Yeshua, Jesus, declared John 7, 37, 38 on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles? I just said it was the eighth. This person thinks it's the seventh. During the water pouring ceremony, in the last day of that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirdly him come unto me and drink, he that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The water pouring became a focus of the joy that the Torah commands for Sukkot. Sukkot's the Jewish name for a feast of booze. On no other festival were the people literally commanded to be joyful, and as a result, Sukkot became known as the season of our joy, just as Passover is the season of our freedom. The water pouring ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles was the only water poured out onto God's altar. This water was lit literally called Yeshua, the waters of salvation. Jesus proclaimed, if anyone drinks of me in God's temple, which demonstrated that he was and still is these waters of salvation. When Yeshua did this, he literally spoke the greatest teaching of Moses. To get to heaven, you must go through these waters to get there. This was the very place where Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. It was also the place where the rabbis used to teach of the coming Messiah. <laughs> when the temple of God stood in Jerusalem, the water pouring ceremony was performed every day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The priests of the Most High God were divided into three divisions during this special, daily special ceremony for Sukkot. One division for the altar, one for the willows, and one for the waters. That's altar, willows, and waters. Three divisions of priests. The first division was the priest on duty for that festival. They would slay the sacrifices found in Numbers 29. Prior to the first group's ascension of the altar, a second group of priests went out the eastern gate of the temple and went to the Matzah Valley where the ashes of the red heifer were dumped at the beginning of the Sabbath. There they would cut willows. The willows had to be 25 feet in length. After this, they would form a line with all the priests holding a willow. About 25 or 30 feet behind this row of priests, 
allowing room for the willows would be another row of priests with willows. So there would be row after row of the willows. All right, so we've got the first priest sacrificing animals on the altar, the second priest, second course of priests, second division of priests cutting down willows. The whole road back to the temple was lined with pilgrims as they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals they were commanded by God to do. There would be a signal and the priest would step out with their left foot and then step to the right. There was a cadence, swinging the willows back and forth. Meanwhile, a third group of priests headed by the high priest went out the gate known as Lordergate. They had gone to the pool known as Siloam. Now, it's extremely complicated if you look at the maps of the walls of Jerusalem at different times and Hezekiah's tunnel and the Siloam tunnel, which I just did in a different context, looked at the map. But uh, the... But there was a spring called Gihon, and out of that spring, there was under the rocks there a, a channel, a tunnel, and the water went to a pool called Siloam in the southeast corner of the walls of Jerusalem. And this was a very, a very famous pool. So they had to get to that pool, the third course, but the high priest had to get to that pool through a gate known as the water gate because they were going to the pool of Siloam. They had, they had gone to the pool known as Siloam, which means gently flowing waters. There the high priest had a golden vase and drew the water known as the living water and held it in the vase. His assistant held a silver vase containing wine. Just as the priest in the valley of Monza began to march toward Jerusalem, those were the priests with the willows, the willows made a swishing sound in the wind as they approached the city. The word wind and spirit in Hebrew were both ruach. Therefore, the ceremony was symbolic, a representative of the Holy Spirit of God coming upon the city of Jerusalem. As each of the party reached their respective gates, a trumpet, a shofar, was blown. Then the one man would stand up. Then one man would stand up and play the flute. The flute represents the Messiah. The flute player is called the pierced one. The flute is pierced, and Yeshua was pierced during the crucifixion. Of course, the Jews didn't think that the symbolism referred to Jesus. Of course, this is a, this is a Messianic Jew writing this. The flute player led the procession. The pierced one blows the call for the wind and the water to enter the temple. The wind, of course, is the second course of priest with the willows. The third course of priest, the water is the third course of priest led by the high priest carrying the water into the temple. The priest from Matzah, that's the willow priest, walked in a cadence, swishing the willows in order to come into the temple. This group then circled the altar seven times. The priests that were slaying the sacrifices are now ascending the altar. That's the first division. And they begin to lay the sacrifices on the fires. The high priest and his assistant ascend the altar, and all the people of Israel are gathered into the courts around there. The people start singing, With joy we'll draw water out of the well we... With joy we will draw water out of the well of salvation. This is from Isaiah 12:3. The high priest takes his golden vase and pours its contents on one of the corners of the altar where the horns are. There are two bowls built into the altar. Each bowl has a hole in it. The water and the wine are poured out over the altar as the priest who had the willow start laying the willows against the altar, making a sukkah booth. They set the willows upright on the side of the altar, forming a wedding canopy or chupah, Chupa, I can't say that, Chupa, which is a picture of the mature body of Christ coming together who are made up of organic matter. These individuals lay down their lives as living sacrifices of fire to form one body, the dwelling place of God. The ceremony of the water drawing points to the day when, according to the prophet Joel, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Now, John himself, later on, we get to the next verses, a few verses will show that this water does symbolize the Holy Spirit. That's something we don't have to get from history or Jewish tradition or Jewish rabbinical lore we get it straight from the Gospel of John. This is 
representing of the Holy Spirit, this water. As mentioned earlier, the water drawing ceremony took on a new dimension of meaning when Yeshua attended the Feast of Sukkot. Well, we'll stop it right there. So you see what an incredible ceremony this is and the rituals that were involved. And in the middle of it, right when the willows are being laid on the altar and the priests are slaying the animals to put up there and the willow priests are walking, circling around the altar, and somewhere in the middle of all this, Jesus stands up and says, You believe in me? You got rivers of living water. He probably stood up right when the priest poured the water on the altar. Now we need to deal with verse 38 because Jesus says that the scripture says... You will have streams of living water. Anybody who believes in me will have streams of living water flowing deep from within you, as the King James has it, from your belly. Well, as John Gill points out, there's no scripture which directly says this. However, there are lots of scriptures talking about the grace of God in general. Let's go through some of them. Isaiah 41:17. The poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. I, Yahweh, will answer them. Psalm 36, 8-9, they are filled with the abundance of your house. You will let them drink from your refreshing stream, for with you is life's fountain. Isaiah 44, 3-4, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants. And there, Isaiah, in chapter 44, verses 3-4, through 4, Isaiah connects, connects water and the Holy Spirit, which, of course, is the direct symbolism in this water-pouring ceremony in John 7. Isaiah 44, 3-4, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will sprout among the grass like poplars by flowing streams. Water and the Spirit. Joel 2, 23, Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication. He sends showers for you, both autumn and spring rain as before. Isaiah 58, 11, the Lord will always lead you, satisfy you in a parched land, and strengthen your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring whose waters never run dry. Joel 3.18 In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the streams of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will issue from the Lord's house, watering the valley of Acacias. Zechariah 14.8 On that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem half of it toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea and summer and winter alike. And this is my favorite here in Ezekiel 47.1. This is the, the so-called um, spiritual temple. It's not an actual temple, but it's a symbolic temple of the church, Ezekiel 47.1. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from the south side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar, and then on and on. I'm not going to read it all. It goes down through the valley of the Arabah. It, it, becomes, it makes the salt water fresh, and the fish live in it, and it shows salvation. That's symbolism of salvation of the world. So there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament about water. So when Jesus said the Scripture says this, he's, talk, he's speaking loosely, but there's a lot of, lot of references to that. Now, in verse 37, it says he stood up on the most important day of the feast, the last day. Again, we don't know whether that's the seventh day or the eighth day. The law doesn't say which was the most important day. The rabbi's tradition says that the last day was the most important, as Adam Clark says. Adam Clark and John Gill say that, say that the last day was important on the eighth day because the sacrifices then were for Israel, but that sacrifices on the first seven days were for all the nations of the earth. And, of course, we know that Israel is more important than the nations of the earth, according to the Jews, of course. You recall Jesus used this metaphor of water, referring to the Holy Spirit. 
He used it earlier with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, three chapters previous. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, the well water in Sychar in Samaria. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. The Holy Spirit gives eternal life. Verse 39 of John 7. He said this about the Spirit. That's he, Jesus, John is talking now. Jesus, John, the apostle, is the author of the book, is referring to Jesus. He said this about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been received because Jesus had not yet been glorified. In other words, Pentecost hadn't happened yet. Jesus hadn't risen, gone to heaven, and sent the Spirit at Pentecost. I'm going to give you a quote from John Gill. Now, I want you to listen to this quote. He sounds like a Pentecostal. Huh? He says this, quote, The apostles and others that had believed in Christ and had received the Spirit as a spirit of regeneration and sanctification, as a spirit of illumination and conversion, as a spirit of faith and adoption. But on the day of Pentecost, they were to receive a larger, even an extraordinary measure of his gifts and grace to qualify them for greater work and service. Now, this is so interesting because... John Gill says that they were already saved, they already were regenerated by the Spirit, and then they received an extra dose of the ghost, if you will, an extra anointing of the Holy Spirit that happened after their regeneration, and that's just the way Charismatics and Pentecostals talk, and Gill wrote, of course, before the Azusa Street Revival. But, of course, the typical evangelical will say, yeah, yeah, but that was just for the Jews back then, that's not for us today. Well, there's lots of people that are living in la-la land, folks. They... Don't see, they don't recognize something good when they see it. John 7, verse 40. When some of the crowd heard these words, they said, This really is the prophet. Now, we already know that some people in the crowd believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, some are saying, after they heard Jesus' speech there, which was pretty dramatic, Ah, this is the prophet. But did they think that this is the Messiah? Now, we know from Deuteronomy 18:15 that Moses prophesied of the Messiah. Let me read that. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. And, and he also mentions it three verses later in Deuteronomy 18, 18. Now, Moses was talking about the Messiah, and many people in Jerusalem thought it referred to the Messiah, but some people separated Messiah from prophet and thought that the prophet was a different person than the Messiah, which, as Adam Clark says, is improper to do. The prophet was the Messiah. They should have separated it out. Now, who were these people that believed that said this really is the prophet again? The NIV Study Bible and John Gill says this is probably the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem mob, as the NIV Study Bible says. The Jerusalem mob tended to be pro-Pharisee and pro-Sanhedrin and anti-Jesus. We go to verses 41 and 42. Others said, this is the Messiah. In other words, some people were saying the prophet is not the Messiah, probably referring to somebody distinct from the Messiah. But others were saying straight on, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived? The Bethlehem prophecy they're talking about is in Micah 5, 2, which is quoted in Matthew 2 when the chief priests and scribes were explaining to Herod where the Messiah was to be born, Herod the Great. And they said, and they quoted Micah 5, 2, in Bethlehem of Judea, because this is what was written by the prophet, they tell Herod. And this is the quote from Micah 5, 2. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. So there's the prophecy of, of the place. And then as far as it being David's offspring, Isaiah 11, 1. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's the Davidic part of the prophecy. And of course, 
Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, was a city of David that belonged there. Uh, Judah was uh, David and his family were from Judah, so they were right about the prophecies. They understood the prophecies cor correctly, but what they didn't understand was that Jesus actually was from Bethlehem. He was from the city of David. He was from Bethlehem, just like Micah prophesied. They they just thought it came from Nazareth because they were used to thinking of Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene. That's where he grew up. They didn't understand the business of Bethlehem to get the because of the census and all that. They didn't understand that. Now. I've already mentioned this in the last audio. I'll mention it again. There was a split of opinion about the Jews, in the, uh, among the Jews, as to where the Messiah was going to come from. This is from the NIV Study Bible. Some Jews thought that Bethlehem was the place of the birth of the Messiah, and some people thought that we don't know where the Messiah has come from. Well, either way, it's going to cause them to doubt. If they thought the Messiah came from Bethlehem, but they thought it came, but the, but the Jews, the, the Jewish pilgrims thought, the, the Jews in Jerusalem thought that the Messiah came from Nazareth. Well, then Nazareth, Nazareth does not fit the Micah five two prophecy about Bethlehem. So they don't believe in the Messiah. And then another group of Jews think that that the Messiah's place is unknown. But we know where Jesus is from. He's from Nazareth, so he can't be the Messiah because the place of Messiah's birth has to be unknown. That was mentioned in the previous audio in the first part of John 7 here. So at any rate, here we see the crowds. Some of them believe he's the Messiah. Some of them believe he's the prophet. And some of them don't believe him at all because of a misunderstanding of where he was from. He was from Nazareth, and also he worked most of his ministry from Capernaum. So either way, he's in Galilee. With Nazareth, Nazareth and Capernaum are in Galilee. Now, if they would just have investigated further, they would have found out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, according to Adam Clark, and then they wouldn't have had their doubt. But they jumped the gun without the facts. Now, if they had known their scriptures better, if they had known their facts better, they would have known where Jesus was from. And if they had known their scripture better, they would have understood that, hey, prophets do come from Galilee. Scriptures, excuse me, the Messiah does come from Galilee because Matthew 4, 13 through 16 says this. He, Jesus, left Nazareth behind and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Naphtali, Naphtali or however you say that, Naphtali. That, those are the two most northwestern provinces of Israel up there in Galilee. Now, him going to Nazareth, leaving Nazareth and, and going to Capernaum, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. Along the sea road, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So you see, Zebulun and Naphtali were in the general area of where Jesus was. So Jesus, and this was prophesied by Isaiah. He goes, Isaiah goes on to prophesy in verse 16, quoted by Matthew in chapter 4, verse 16. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the shadow land of death, light has dawned. So you see, the Messiah is prophesied to come from Galilee. But they didn't know their scripture well enough to know that. Let's read that prophecy from Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and light is dawn of those living in the land of darkness. So, Jesus was the Messiah. He, he proved he was the Messiah by the miracles he did. Some people didn't believe in the miracles. He proved he was the Messiah by the prophecy and the scriptures he fulfilled. Some people didn't believe those either. John 7, verses 43 through 44. So a division occurred among the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. 
some of the crowd apparently wanted to do the dirty work of the Jews and the temple police who were trying to arrest him. But no one did anything about it. They wanted to, but they didn't do anything about it. Why? Perhaps it was just the providence of God. Maybe it was the fear of the people who did think Jesus was the Messiah. If somebody laid hands on Jesus and grabbed him and turned him over to the Jewish authorities, they were afraid they might get lynched. So they didn't do it. Or it could be they were awed by the majesty of Christ. And believe me, when Jesus gets up in the middle of this awesome ceremony and says what he does about living water, it's hard to go up and grab somebody like that. John 7, verses 45 through 49. Then the temple police came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why haven't you brought him? They, the temple police had been sent out in a previous verse, verse 32, which I've already mentioned. Now the temple police are coming back, and the, and the chief priests and the Pharisees asked the temple police, Why haven't you brought him? The police answered, No one ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd which doesn't know the law is accursed. Now these Jewish Pharisees, you can just tell in the text here, they're, get, they're going nuts. They're getting panicked. Now notice that when the police answered, the temple police gave their excuse as to why they had not arrested Jesus. They didn't say, well, we were afraid of the crowd. We could have started a riot. That would have been a logical thing to say. But what did they say? No man ever spoke like this. They were so incredibly impressed by the man they were sent to arrest, they couldn't arrest him. And they were just stunned into telling the truth to the Pharisees, even though they must have known the Pharisees would not like to have heard that. You mean you're telling us that no one's ever spoken like this? What's the matter with you? We sent out you to arrest him, and now you're giving him a shout-out, a praise. And so the Pharisees responded to the temple police and said, Are you fool too? Have any of the rules of Pharisees believed in him? Now, there's two ways you can read this response of the Pharisees. They could actually be afraid. They could be insecure. Oh my gosh, man, if, if this man is speaking like that and he's, and he's impressed our temple police like this, maybe he's also converted some of the rulers of the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees. Our fellow Pharisees might be leaving him now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but there's another way you can read it too. They could be being sarcastic. They're saying, have any of the rulers of Pharisees believed in him? And it's a rhetorical question, expecting no for an answer. Of course they haven't believed in him. And they're the rulers. They're the leaders. And then in verse 39, but on the other hand, contrasted with these rulers and Pharisees, we have the crowd, which doesn't know the law. And the crowd is accursed. So they're saying, are you going to believe the stupid, ignorant, accursed crowd, temple police? Or are you going to believe the leaders of Israel, the rulers and the Pharisees? I am sort of 50-50 about which way the Pharisees meant this. But I do know this, if, if they were exhibited insecurity, have any of the rulers of Pharisees believed? Well, actually, yes. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they were both Pharisees and they both believed. Nicodemus is John 3, the famous John 3.16 chapter. Now, notice what how the Pharisees viewed the crowd in verse 49. They said this ignorant, what did they say? This, this crowd is accursed because they don't know the law. And of course, when they mean my law, they mean the traditions of men as well as the Mosaic law. Now, the Pharisees held the common people in utter contempt, as Adam Clark says, and the Pharisees are referring to the pilgrim crowd coming down from the north from that nasty low-life place, Galilee. They're not probably not talking about the Jerusalem citizenry. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the Greek word for crowd there could be translated the ignorant rabble. And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that the Greek is lost in translation. translation. These important distinctions between a lot of people and an ignorant people, ignorant rabble, those distinctions 
are very obvious in the original of the gospel, and it should be in the English too. Well, I don't know. I don't know the Greek that well to know, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they were saying, these ignorant rednecks from Galilee. Now, when the Pharisees said that the ignorant crowd didn't know the scriptures or didn't know the law, the Pharisees were exaggerating the people's ignorance of the law. As the NIV Study Bible points out, John 7:42, this is the crowd saying this, doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived? Well, see, they knew the, the sprout from the root of Jesse. They knew that scripture. And they knew Micah 5, 2 about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. So they weren't totally ignorant of the scripture. But when the Pharisees said that the crowd, that ignorant rabble, was ignorant of the law, they were actually correct in one aspect. The average working class Jew widely disregarded the traditions of the elders, as the NIV Study Bible points out. The laws were too onerous for people living by hard physical labor, so they just ignored them. And so that might be one reason why the Pharisees were so ticked off at them, in addition to the fact that they were proclaiming Jesus, this false Messiah, as the true Messiah. Now, the chief priests and Pharisees say this. It doesn't say when or how they said it. John Gill speculates that the chief priests and the Pharisees were assembled together in the Sanhedrin as, as an official body. It's obvious they are filled with rage and fury. You can just tell it by reading the text. I mentioned earlier that if they were concerned about some people, some of the rulers and Pharisees believing, and I mentioned that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus believed, although they didn't reveal themselves after the, the crucifixion. There's another verse in John 12:42, which I failed to mention at that point, which does say that many people didn't believe in him. John 12:42. nevertheless, many did believe in him even among the rulers. That's the people in the, the Sanhedrin, the political big shots. Many did believe in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, and so they would not be banned from the synagogue. They believed, but they were a little chicken. They were scared to come out and say it. We go to John 50 and 52. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously, that was in John 3:16, at night when Nicodemus came and asked how he could get, how he could get born, how he could get salvation. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously, being one of them, being one of the Pharisees, said to them, "Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? In other words, you guys are about to do a lynch job on Jesus, and maybe you better hold up." Now, of course, Nicodemus is at this time at least sympathetic to Jesus. Maybe he even even believes in Jesus. I don't know, but he calls out the Pharisees very good. They just previously said this ignorant rabble doesn't understand the law, and then Nicodemus says, "Well, uh, the law says you're not you're supposed to give an accused the right to testify, and you're not doing it. So who's ignorant of the law? That's the implication. He didn't say it directly, but that's the implication." They weren't happy when Nicodemus said that. Now, Nicodemus was a big shot. You know, he was on the Sanhedrin, so they couldn't exactly treat him with disrespect. But this is what they say in verse 52. You aren't from Galilee, too, are you? In other words, you're not an ignorant moron from Galilee who doesn't know the law. Or you're not from Galilee and have been influenced by Jesus so much that you believe in him. And then they tried to argue from the scriptures against Nicodemus. They replied, investigate, and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, they were wrong. As the NIV Study Bible points out, Jonah came from Galilee. Investigate for yourselves. And if Nicodemus was on, on top of his scripture, you could say, well, Jonah was from Galilee. This is the kind of stuff that's hard to pull off the top of your head. Nahum was from Galilee, as Adam Clark says. Malachi was from Galilee, as Adam Clark says. 2 Kings 14.25 tells us that Jonah was from Gath-Hefer, and Gath-Hefer was in Zebulun, which is in Galilee. And then, of course, I already told you the Messiah himself. I've already quoted this scripture from Isaiah 9.1. The Messiah himself came from 
the way of the sea, Galilee of the nations. The Gentile, a lot of Gentiles up there in Galilee, so it was called Galilee of the nations. So, these Pharisees, in trying to knock down Nicodemus, didn't know what in the Gehenna they were talking about. They were just full of rage and fury and fear. And when they told Nicodemus to investigate, they didn't realize that Nicodemus had investigated. They hadn't read John 3 yet. <laughs> John, Nicodemus had been quite favorably impressed by Jesus already. Notice that even Nicodemus's word of caution, Nicodemus didn't come out and say, no, 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 he's the Messiah. He's innocent. He's the Messiah. No, he just said, hey, you know, procedurally, we better go slow here to go according to our law. Very gentle, but even that gentle word of caution evoked rage and anger on the part of Pharisees and rulers. To them, it was equivalent to a declaration in Jesus' favor. And now in verse 53, we read, so each one went to his house. I didn't include verse 53 in this passage of uh, John here because it's part of the disputed text from John 7:53 to 8:11, which is the story of the woman caught in adultery, which is suspect textually. We're going to take that up in the next audio. So we'll stop it right here. Jesus is causing a lot of confusion and and loyalty and opposition and danger here at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so we're finished with this audio. And the next audio, as I said, will take up the story of the woman caught in adultery. I hope you listen to that one. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>